Dr. Diva Iman, along with our host Eric Weinmayer and a handful of additional explorers, were tapped to guide actor Will Smith through some of Earth's greatest wonders and hidden secrets. This was for National Geographic series Welcome to Earth. Diva is a marine biologist focused on the little-known habitats and animals of the deep ocean. She regularly ventures down into those depths and submersibles with her deepest dive to the Cayman Trench. That's about 8,500 feet below the surface. In our episode today, Eric and Diva compare a few notes on things like being an unlikely hero, establishing routines in the middle of chaos, dancing with feelings of fear, confidence, or lack thereof, especially when you're on the forefront of something new for which no guidebook exists. Why hope is so important in the face, well, in the face of a plastic bag floating past the window of your submersible 3,000 feet down in the ocean? What's it really like in those teeny underwater vessels called submersibles anyways? Diva is working to make positive changes in the way the ocean is used and managed. On that point, she shared, all of humankind, not just an elite few should know enough to inform the decisions that we are making because ultimately that's the way we're going to preserve it for generations to come. We all have a stake, but we don't have a seat at the table right now, and we need to work to change that. All right, let's get into it. I hope you enjoy this conversation between Eric Weinmayer and Dr. Diva Amon. I'm producer Diedrich Jonk, and this is the No Barriers Podcast. It's easy to talk about the successes, but what doesn't get talked about enough is the struggle. My name is Eric Weinmayer. I've gotten the chance to ascend Mount Everest, to climb the tallest mountain in every continent, to kayak the Grand Canyon, and I happen to be blind. It's been a struggle to live what I call a no barriers life, to define it, to push the parameters of what it means. And part of the equation is diving into the learning process and trying to illuminate the universal elements that exist along the way. In that unexplored terrain between those dark places we find ourselves in and the summit exists a map. That map, that way forward, is what we call no barriers. Hey everyone, welcome to the No Barriers Podcast. This is Eric Weinmayer. We took a little break because I was off in Jordan rock climbing for two weeks in this beautiful place called Wadi Rum. So it's good to be back. And man, it, we're coming back with a bang because we have my friend, Dr. Diva Aman on with us today. Hey, Diva, how are you this morning? Hey, Eric. So great to be here. I am wonderful. It's so lovely to connect again. It's good to hear your voice. Yes. You've been all over the world. We met on the set of Welcome to Earth, this really cool National Geographic slash Disney program that we did together. You're a deep sea biologist, of course, and you had amazing segments on Welcome to Earth. So then we got to hang a little bit, what, in L.A. and Beverly Hills. We went to some screenings and stuff like that. It was really fun to get to know you as well as the other National Geographic explorers. Yeah, it was great to do all these fancy things together. And likewise, I could throw it back to you and say, you know, your episode in Welcome to Earth was my absolute favorite and all of your segments were phenomenal. And it was just such a, a treat getting to know you and the other explorers, definitely. It was fun. It was such a good experience in life. And I got to go to Vanuatu and explore a volcano. You got to take Will down way deep in a deep, deep, in the yeah, a kilometer yeah. deep in a deep sea submersible. And that was pretty cool, right? I'm sure that was pretty wild. 
I mean, that it was and wild. You've done that a lot, but for you, it was probably wild getting to share that with Will. Yeah, absolutely. As you say, like, this is what I do in my day to day job, but going actually going down yourself is still pretty rare. But to be able to do it with someone who had never done it before, like Will, is always a wonderful thing because you get to see their experience of it for the first time. And it really reminds you about the all of the extreme feelings that go with it. But you he know, had some it, big eyes, didn't he? Exactly. I was going to say, but doing it with Will, certainly, he was definitely terrified of being in this tiny submersible and going somewhere that no one has ever been before and where we have no idea what we're going to find and where if something goes wrong, it's highly unlikely no one is coming to get you. But I was also, I think, a little bit more nervous than usual because I'm sitting here next to this A-list celebrity and it just was a completely new experience for me, right? That aspect of it. So it was just fair all around, but also a lot of excitement. (laughs) All right. The fear for me, obviously, the metal collapsing around you and dying a hideous death. That's scary enough. But for me, the fear would be being down there and not being able to pee. Oh, my God. I don't know how you do that. How do you hold it? You are so right, Eric. I've done it like maybe 12 times in the 12 years that I've been doing this. And the first time I remember going down, of course, I was afraid for all the reasons that I mentioned before, but the overriding fear was absolutely the fact that there's no bathroom and you're in there for nine, 10 hours. And just what in God's name are you going to do if you do have to go? And sure, we have a number of ways to deal with it. As a dude, I'd bring a Gatorade bottle for sure. (laughs) Well, we have have something a little, I mean, it's basically like a glorified Gatorade bottle. Which you can use, but the submersible is so small that you're basically like touching each other. You're sitting so close together. So there would be like no no modesty at all in, in having to go, right? So yeah, the other we'll option close is your eyes. Like, exactly, right? And the other got and a government appeared to go. And then the other option is you wear an adult diaper, which nobody wants to do because there's nothing dignified about that. I do or... that. That's smart. <laughs> would you know what Yeah, Eric? for sure. <laughs> Yeah. Yeah. And then the other option, which is what I do, is I dehydrate myself. So from dinner the night before, I do not put any liquids into my body. And I do not drink anything for the whole time that we're down there. Nothing. Nothing. But God forbid you had to do a number two because then. Oh, my God. Yeah. That would be horrible. That's just a no. Apparently, that's you don't come back from that. Like you. Yeah. 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 Career over. Enough said on that. I totally agree. Yeah. That's a game stopper. But you have to deal with going in all kinds of remote places. Sure, you're not sitting like an inch from the person next to you. But yeah, you guys get close, right? Yeah, I hate to go here. But since we are, yeah, (laughs) I've been like high up on peaks like Everest and you're going number two and you can't feel your hand. You can't feel your butt. You don't know what's going on down there. You're just frozen. You're just frozen. You're totally numb. You're miserable. You're like, what am I doing? And then you're scared because you're sitting in the snow, you're standing and with your crampons, and if you fall over backwards, you're going to die. So it's high-consequence pooping. These are the things that people need to know, right? This is the reality of exploration and pushing barriers, breaking barriers. <laughs> this is what has to happen. <laughs> is that a, a pun? Pushing barriers? Even nice job. Oh, my God. All right, so tell us from a blind guy's perspective, because I've seen the show, of course. I've heard the show, I should say with audio description, which is a great narrative for the blind. But describe like the crazy fish and stuff you saw down there in the submersible, the headless 
chicken fish and all these crazy things that you saw down there with Will. I heard that was like mind boggling for people who were uninitiated. Yeah. So, you know, a lot of people think about the deep sea as being this like, obviously deep and dark, but this pretty empty and barren place. But actually, it is so far away from that in that it is this reservoir of biodiversity. There are hundreds of thousands of species in the deep sea. And as you've already alluded to, some of them are pretty weird, but also pretty wonderful. So when Will and I went down, we, what did we see? We saw headless chicken monster, one of my favorites. It's a species of sea cucumber that lives in the deep sea and is actually able to swim. And it does that in the most hypnotic and beautiful way. It just, it really is something to behold. It's like you're like a living lava lamp, if you will. <laughs> does it have a brain? Is it a sentient being? I think scientists are still... Many people have different definitions of sentient, et cetera, et cetera, but it is an animal. It does have a nervous system and it is able to, it's able to make decisions that help it to survive, right? About, hey, I should swim away from this. Hey, food is over there. Oh, danger, whatever. So I think, yeah, so it is, it's just something, it's really something, quite a spectacle to see. We also saw like a really big siphonophore, which is... It's related to a jellyfish, but basically it's comprised of lots of tiny organisms called zoids that all work together like a community to do different functions, but act like one animal. It's completely fascinating. The closest relative is like a Portuguese man of war. It's one of those jellyfish that sting really bad. And so we saw one of those again, super beautiful. But I think the best thing that we saw was... Again, people think about the deep sea as being dark. And sure, there's no sunlight down there. But actually, there is a huge amount of light. In fact, animals can create their own light. And they do that in the deep sea in these most rhythmic and beautiful displays from reds and blues and greens to Their own headlamp. Exactly. Like there's some anglerfish, some like the anglerfish have their own headlamp, their little lures that come off the head. But others are able to shoot out glowing so it's like chemical electricity of some kind. So they, so basically it is, it's the creation of light and they use it, they do it with using oxygen and a photoprotein and they, it's bacteria working with the animal to do it. And we now think that bioluminescence could be one of the most common forms of communication on the planet, given how vast the deep sea is. Wow. So it's, Will and I had the most amazing bioluminescent display to witness and it just it's like the most beautiful fireworks you've ever seen yeah i don't miss a lot of things and with sight but that man i would have loved to have seen what you guys saw there it's so visually spectacular and that whole show was visually spectacular yeah yes it's like a feast for the eyes and you've seen all kinds of amazing creatures from the mariana trench to antarctica like whale carcasses underwater and you've seen like I saw a podcast where you were talking about bone-eating worms. <laughs> the zombie uh, worms. <laughs> zombie yeah. worms and these hairy blind crabs. Yep. Wow. Yeah. And this, it's like the deep sea is, was like created by Dr. Seuss. Everything down there is just a little bit weird, but it's just totally fascinating because animals have evolved so perfectly to thrive down there, not just live down there, but thrive down there. And it means they have the most remarkable ways of doing that from 
farming their own bacteria on their hairy chests and arms, to creating their own light, to having this weird parasitic relationship where males often end up glued to females and all kinds of weird stuff happens down there. But it's a remarkable place and it's thought that it could hold some of the solutions to some of the greatest challenges that might face humanity in the future. So we'll see. And you think these are like alien creatures, but they're right here on the planet, which is so cool. You you said that if you go down deep enough, there's a 50% chance you're going to discover a new species. What profession has that opportunity still with 99% of the oceans still undiscovered, right? That's pioneering stuff you're so lucky to be a part of. And I think you and I are both explorers and we get this amazing opportunity to see things that no one has seen before, to experience things that no one has seen before. And that's something that's really remarkable to be part of. But in the deep sea, people think we've discovered everything on the planet or discovered all the species. But in the deep sea, as you say, every time we go down, we're finding new species and sometimes hundreds or thousands of new species. Really, we are just beginning to scrape the surface of what we know about our ocean and our planet. You have 71 published research articles and scientific journals. So you probably discovered some species, huh? I love how much research you've done. (laughs) Very flattered, Eric. (laughs) Yeah, I have... There's a difference between discovering and describing a new species because we discover new species all the time, but to actually confirm that they are new species, it means you need to have a specimen in hand. Uh-huh. And you need to write a formal description, analyze their DNA, do a bunch of stuff. So and you I've can't discovered... call them the diva fish. I, I learned that. Exactly. Exactly. Yep. So I've discovered a lot. I've described maybe about 10 or so deep sea animals, deep sea species. And yes, one of the critical rules of naming a new species is that you cannot name it after yourself. So you have to make really good friends, basically. (laughs) (laughs) What was the coolest one that you recognized? We have discovered, with a team, obviously, I've discovered three species of bone-eating zombie worms, two species of sponges, a deep-sea lobster, and... Wow. Another worm, and now we're working on some deep-sea coral. Yeah. So it, I feel very lucky in that I get to yeah. work across so many different types of animals. And those worms sound gross, but they're like amazing because they're like vacuum cleaners. They like totally eat up the bones. And so there's not clutter down there. So it's like I mean, an amazing. I don't want to be like cliche, right? But it's the Jurassic Park line, life finds a way. The deep sea is that, like life finds a way. And those bone-eating worms, as you said, they live on only on the bones of dead whales, which is pretty niche. And they are able to secrete acid to dissolve away the bone, eat the collagen within the bone. And they have all these like crazy mating strategies where scientists were only finding the females. And it turns out that the males were actually there all along. The males are just microscopic. And one female can have hundreds of males. And it turns out the older or larger the female, the more males she has. And when the males run out of sperm, she just gets new ones. And it just... Again, stuff is crazy down in the deep sea. (laughs) Yeah. So I was just in Jordan rock climbing, and then I went to the Dead Sea, and they told me that there's no life in the Dead Sea. It's too salty. And I'm like, come on. With all the stuff I've read about you and like the exploration you've done, life finds a way to live anywhere. So is that true, or is there really no life in the Dead Sea? Like, it's so salty. Nothing can figure out how to survive? 
First, let me say that I am so jealous you were just rock climbing in Jordan. Jordan is 100% <laughs> on my bucket. Just that whole region is so fascinating and is definitely on the bucket list. Magical. I'm sure you did the whole floating thing in the Dead Sea, right? Of course. Of course. But I think I think you're completely right in that life finds a way. And I would bet my life that there are microbes living within the Dead Sea. Because if anything, microbes always find a way. There are microbes that they... I read recently that there are microbes that Japanese scientists were able to resuscitate from living within the Earth's crust after millions of years of being... Yeah down there crazy oh, yeah okay that's great like microbes are crazy they can survive pretty much anything so they're probably in there to be honest gosh so it makes you think if life finds a way in those environments like there's probably life on other planets there's gotta that, be you know I mean, out there yeah yes again would also bet my life that there is life on other planets it may not be like life as we know it or imagine it aliens walking around on two legs with giant eyes right. but i definitely think there's something out there probability wise <laughs> so shifting a little bit so you're writing research papers you're on tv you're exploring you're out on these big vessels doing exploration how do you do all that how do you integrate that dance your life must be really crazy now well i think this is the first time i've ever been asked that and thank you for doing that you are exactly right and i'm sure you have similar challenges right? oh yeah that... i have the most eclectic bizarre exactly. life exactly yeah. And, but that's, and I there's still something complain. wonderful about you. We're the exact same in that, yes, I absolutely love it. I feel so lucky to have this life. I love what I do, even though it's 10 million things, but it is exhausting. And I complain all the time. <laughs> <laughs> Work-life balance is like zero. <laughs> right. I'm definitely working on that. But, and thankfully, a lot of my work is what I love, like you, I'm sure. But there are certainly limitations to living this life where you're constantly traveling, constantly doing something, just overcommitted people. It must be hard on friendships and relationships too, because like you're gone a month and you pop back, hey, here I am. Everyone's ah, I've moved on. I think the two major, I hope. By I, the way, I'm I, speaking. I uh, <laughs> speaking. Yeah, exactly. You got it. Yeah, I'm speaking from personal experience. I mean, I hope experience. they're not like moved on after a month. Jesus. <laughs> <laughs> but but I think definitely the two biggest downsides to what I do, and I will say that the the upsides far outweigh the downsides, though, is that exactly what you said is that relation, it's hard on relationships of all kinds. You have to have a very forgiving and loving friends and family and partners because you're gone a lot of the time and you're busy a lot of the time. And often I think you're having experiences that are really hard for other people in your life to relate to because they are just so wonderful and amazing and rare. And that can be tough. And the other thing I'd say that's hard to do, and I would love to hear if you have tips on this, is like, man, it's so hard to maintain a routine of some kind. Yeah. It affects everything, like your eating, your exercise, your whatever you do as downtime. It just, it's tough. Me, it's just what exercise. I just have to, I have to get exercise, whether I'm in a hotel gym, just riding a stationary bike or... When I'm home, I'm climbing at the rock gym or cycling outside, getting my sunshine. Yeah. So for me, that's the consistency that I, I have to have. <laughs> yeah. I'm not as disciplined as you are. <laughs> uh -huh. But yeah, your life is totally eclectic though. So yes. my, I want to shift again because I don't know, most people look out 
at the ocean and they're maybe like inspired. They have awe, they have fear. And this is your life going down under the seas, whether it be in a submersible or whether it be in a scuba or maybe even like a dry suit or whatever it may be. But so you must even today or maybe throughout your experience had fear, like you're this little speck in this vast ocean. Do you, how do you deal with fear or maybe you just don't have it? Gosh, no, there's absolutely fear in what I do. And there's different kinds of fear, right? So there's the fear of when you are in the, as you say, in the wild, under the ocean, like dealing with wild animals, et cetera, et cetera. There is that a very raw fear, I should say, that comes with what I do. So that is certainly much rarer and often is combined with awe and excitement and so on. But then there's, I think, the more constant fear that I get as a scientist and a scientist who's often in the public space is one of, there's two things in that in deep sea, deep sea science is incredibly expensive and it means, and deep sea exploration as well. And it means that there it's been limited to the most wealthy countries in the world or wealthy individuals in the world. And so that means that, for instance, for me, someone who's come, been born and raised in the Caribbean, is from the Caribbean, and is a like young woman of color from a developing country, it means that there's not a lot of people like me in the entire field that I work in. And so there is a lot of fear associated with that and that I'm often an anomaly in the rooms that I walk into. And that can be challenging. And also, I imagine you can't show fear because you're like, I'm a little bit of a one of a kind thing here. And so if I show fear or vulnerability, maybe it's hard to do that. Exactly. I'd love to hear your thoughts on that after. But exactly, Eric, I feel like it's always this fine dance between trying to deal with the feelings that you're experiencing, which are sometimes fear or the fact that you feel not good enough, your imposter syndrome, et cetera, et cetera with this balance of, hey, I'm the first or one of the first to step into this role. And so it means that I need to do all that I can to try to remove those barriers and pave the way for others like me to step into this role and for them to be for it to be easier for them to do that. And so it's really tough sometimes. But again, like certainly is something that I wouldn't want to change. But Eric, you must have encountered the same. How has it been for you? Yeah, there's a little pressure when you're representing. Not that you are a representative, but you're forced into that role. Absolutely. So yeah, like when I climb a peak and I'm sponsored by 50,000 blind people from, say, the National Federation of the Blind, there's a lot of pressure. If I turn back, which you have to do sometimes, yep. you're like, oh, I let all these people down. But you can't think that way because that becomes dangerous. You know what I mean? If you're just like, I got to do this for others, it becomes a kind of a false summit, I think. I completely agree. And I think there's this, I'm going to give away one of my secrets here, but perhaps it's a secret that many also share in that while I, of course, we all grapple with imposter syndrome and I certainly know and have to remind myself again and again and again that I have the skills and the right to be in that room or wherever I may be at that time, et cetera, et cetera. But I often find myself, especially before I do very challenging things, like big talks or liaise with government officials or whatever it might be. I repeat it in my head is fake it till you make it. And I don't mean fake 
my experience and my skills and all that stuff. I just mean fake the confidence. Because if you just ha outwardly show that you are confident, even if you don't feel it inside, others will believe it. And that's what matters. Yeah. But because you are a bit of an unlikely hero, as a woman in this profession, I can only imagine that you are a trailblazer and have there been tough experiences where like people have overlooked you or just undermined you or looked past you? Oh, absolutely. And it's, it is unfortunate. I think there are still huge biases and systemic problems within science. I get, at least I'll talk from that perspective. And yes, I've seen it's, it's been very, sometimes very isolating to work in this field. And especially when, like you, I spend so much time in very remote situations where you're on a ship for months of the time. For that time, you hardly ever see land. Often, there's not many people who look like you or share your experiences on board. And so there, there are a lot of challenges, both just from an office or institution scenario to those being right out at sea where it's critically important that you have a safe working space and sometimes you don't necessarily again it's something i'm sure you can identify with of course yeah yeah so is it like the typical stuff where dudes maybe are mansplaining or professors that maybe uh, didn't see potential is there any stuff like that like specifically or so it's varied right and everyone has different experiences but people also have similar experiences and so it can be anything from like a little mansplain or microaggression for instance all the way to for instance like there's a lot of sexual harassment and sometimes even sexual assault that happens at sea and so it can be all of these things are very serious and there are huge changes that still need to be made from an individual perspective all the way up to an, a global institutional perspective but yeah there's a lot of work to be done to make sure that everyone feels supported and welcome working in the deep ocean definitely and there's also huge hierarchical issues as well where it's like the classic thing of this professor has been in this role and refuses to leave the role and sees and wants to maintain a hierarchy and power structures and all all that kind of stuff that exists in other professions as well but uh, there's a lot of challenges given the variety of what we do we face challenges in each of those different subjects so you grew up in Trinidad, Tobago, Caribbean. And so that's, I don't even know exactly how to phrase this without being like insulting, you know what I mean? But that is not the typical path. You're not in the UK, you're not in America, you're not. So the fact that you found your way through a PhD program and you're a doctor and you're just out there crushing it, it's pretty wild. What was that journey like, I guess? How did that unlikely thing happen? Yeah, yeah. So that question wasn't insulting at all. I think it's a really important question. And you're quite right. Coming from Trinidad and Tobago when I was growing up, it was a very normal thing that you either became a lawyer or an engineer or a doctor. And I think I was very lucky in that my parents, when I told them I wanted to do medicine at university, they sat me down and they were like, no, especially my mom. She was like, no, I want you to really think about what you love and what you want to do and then choose that. And I think there was probably that they didn't want to pay 
medical school fees. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I think that was also a play. But, but no, that was one of those pivotal moments where I sat and I thought about it and I thought, what do I love? And I, I love the ocean and I wanted to be able to explore it, answer critical questions about it, and then work to protect it as much as possible. So that was where that road began. But it certainly wasn't the norm and it certainly wasn't an easy role. Like I had to get scholarships to fund my both my undergraduate and my PhD research, especially because I went away to study. School fees were astronomical, as which is something that you can identify with in the US. And as I said, I was often the anomaly in the room, which had certainly a lot of challenges associated with it. But I think what keeps me motivated in all of this is that the ocean is the epitome of global. And so that means that all of humankind, not just an elite few, should know enough to inform the decisions that we are making, because ultimately that's the way that we're going to preserve it for generations to come. We all have a stake, but we all don't have a seat at the table right now, and we need to work to change that. And so if I can be part of that, then even though it's really tough, it's something that I would really am very happy to commit my life to. That's cool. So I have a friend who's an adventure videographer, filmmaker, and he does a lot of underwater filming. And he said the moment for him when he changed careers halfway through his life was when he saw this, I think it was a peacock flounder that changed colors. <laughs> wow. Sure. They're beautiful. But yeah. That's interesting. That was what did it. Okay. Because they were so adaptable. And he's like, hey, right. man, if these things can adapt in this insane way, they can change colors. I can change careers because he wasn't happy. So, but did you have an experience like that where you said, this is what I want to do? Was there a moment it just reinforced this is the path I'm going to take, even though it's going to be hard. So I think from very early in my life, growing up in the Caribbean, it means the ocean is never far away. And the, I remember being out at sea and looking down into the water as a child and just wishing that I could see what was down there. Like that, some of my earliest memories revolve around the ocean and life within it. And so I think the ocean was always a critical part of my life. And it was just about having my parents push me in that direction. But while I perhaps didn't have one aha moment like that, time and time again, once I made that decision to study marine science, I feel like that decision has been reinforced as the right one for me. And I just feel so lucky and privileged to be able to experience the ocean in the way I have from swimming with hundreds of manta rays and the Maldives and sperm whales in the Azores to diving several kilometers deep in the ocean to a part of the planet that no one has ever seen before. Those are really experiences that are super hard to contend with. And I feel very lucky and privileged to be able to do them and also to move past just having those experiences and be working to understand and to conserve this part of the planet and to most importantly to share it with as many people as possible which you do a brilliant job doing so in the face of all those highs though were there moments in your in their process that you're like f this i can't do this this is just too much <laughs> oh, everything i know i'm like thinking very i'm like let me think about a political way to answer this. a diplomatic not a political diplomatic way to answer this question I think everything has its challenges and there have been times where I've just been like, what the hell just happened? Or like, I, this is not something I can continue to deal with for the rest of my life, et cetera, et cetera. And I feel like those are becoming more common, but perhaps that's because as 
I feel like my leadership is growing, as my confidence is growing, as I feel that I belong and have every right to be there, that I now am able to channel those experiences into fuel to try to make things better, basically. And so, yes, there have certainly been times when I'm just like, heck, I am not, who says heck? F this, I'm out of here. <laughs> but <laughs> F this, I'm out of here. But now more and more, I just see it as reason for me being where I am and working to basically open more doors for people like me to step into the space so that things can be done better in the future. So in the converse side of all this negativity that I'm talking about, right? Who are the door <laughs> openers in your life? Who were the people that inspired you? Of course, your parents sounds like they're really big cheerleaders, right? Yeah. So I'm so glad you asked that because literally as I finished that, that previous answer, I was like, oh, but I there's so much that I owe to the people who have helped me get here. This is never something you can do on your own, especially when you are in often such difficult positions or challenging positions. And so there's been so many people. I mean, my mom is has been essential. She has literally been there every step of the way and has, I can wholeheartedly say, done everything in her power to create a better life for her children than she had. And that's something that's really remarkable. But in addition to that, I think for a while in my career, it was hard to find mentors because I was just interacting with so few women or people of color, et cetera, et cetera. And I felt like a lot of the people I was dealing with didn't necessarily have the same goals or aims. But that thankfully changed and I have the opportunity to work with phenomenal deep sea scientists and just marine scientists and policy experts from around the world, women, many of them from around the world. And the list is too long, but there have been so many critical people in my life from... Wasn't there some badass woman scientist from Bangladesh that was like your hero? From ba Oh, okay. If we're going to start naming names, and I feel awful to do this because I'm definitely going to forget some and someone's going to get angry. But uh, some of the critical people are... I'm on the executive for this organization called the Deep Ocean Stewardship Initiative. And basically, they are a network of experts that work to use science to inform policy to ensure that the deep sea is managed and sustained effectively, basically. Stewarded is what I should say. Sorry, stewarded. And that is headed by all women. They are all phenomenal women in their own right. And I feel so lucky to be able to work with them. I have amazing colleagues who like Dr. Asha DeVos, who's the one that you're referring to. She's from Sri Lanka. And she really, yeah, she's, she's also a National Geographic explorer. She's probably the first person that I ever saw in the field of marine science. that so I was like, that's basically me, but a few years older, like she, we're the same in so many ways. She's a woman of color. She's young. She's from a developing country. And she does phenomenal work. And she's not afraid to talk the talk and walk. So she has just been a huge hero of mine always. And it's so important, by the way, to interrupt. It's so important. It's hard when you can't get a glimpse of, okay, that's who I want to be. Not exactly. I want to be me. But to see the glimpse of what to that could that look possible. like. Yeah, to see that's that it's cool. possible. Yeah. And there's so many others, like Ayana Elizabeth Johnson, who's another amazing woman of color who works on climate and ocean science. Katie Croft-Bell, the National Geographic family, has been phenomenal in supporting me. I work with so many NGOs that also have supported me. And they basically have been, have shown me that it's okay to want, as a scientist, I think we often get told that we have to be objective and we can't, we're basically not human. We cannot have feelings about things, et cetera, et cetera. But I think that's BS, to be honest. 
if I want to work towards making our planet better and leaving it in a better condition than we found it, and many of these, especially female scientists, have shown me that is possible. And also, there I think largely women have been dedicated to opening doors for others and making sure that they are coming into a supportive and inclusive environment. And those are two things that are critically important to me. And so it's been really wonderful to fi- to finally find in the last few years my people, my community, that basically are where we're all working towards this shared goal which is ultimately to help people and planet. Love it. And it sounds, I imagine as a scientist, you're taught to be cold and clinical. Like, oh, don't bring your emotions into it. But you're saying you can bring your heart into this thing. You, there's a purpose, right? Yeah. It's, I mean, it's not that you, it's not that you can bring your heart into it. I fundamentally believe that we should bring our heart into it because that perspective will enrich our science and the way we do our science. It's what should be happening. I think if we did that as scientists, our planet would certainly be in a slightly better position than it is now. And so I think part of, not a big part, but a part of the advocacy is promoting maybe people to go into the sciences. Have you done some work? Is it pretty cool? Like when you meet a classroom of girls and you t- talk about all the things you've done and see their eyes light up and, and the doors opening in their minds? Yeah, exactly. It's, as I said, it's, I feel so privileged to have experienced the ocean in a way I have. And I want to show others that it is possible and absolutely help to open for them to do that and help to open doors so that it is easier for them to do that. And so just a quick example. And every time I do one of these, some kind of public engagement, I always feel, I'm sure you perhaps also feel like this, Eric, but you just feel like warm and rosy inside. I know that sounds really cheesy, right? But it, But you do. And so recently I was in Calgary where I gave a National Geographic live talk and it was a student matinee where we had over two days, we had nearly 4,000 students see the show. And for the first one that I did, and I've done lots of these types of talks before, but this one, like when I was waiting off stage to go on, the roar that was coming from the room, the excitement in the room, it literally... It sounded like they were waiting for the Messiah or like Beyonce. I don't even know, right? It just, it was literally like this deafening, slightly terrifying, but thousands of little divas just like all there, (laughs) future divas. But the talk went great and they were super engaged. And then after we had the opportunity to do a question and answer and the questions that you always get from younger generations are always, I think the most compelling. They're just often able to not have fear and channel, think about things in a completely different way to what you and I perhaps think about. And so Why, it's what's just, like a it's typical something... question? <laughs> like you get all, I don't know, you get all kinds of things from like the normal, do dolphins sleep? And how do octopus change color? And how do fish breathe underwater? But there's all kinds of mad stuff like, do you ever see human bodies at the bottom of the ocean? And can you eat sea turtles? And all kinds of like, stuff that you're like where did that come from I have no idea or just things that honestly I feel like I have to tell kids more than adults that I have no idea the answer to your question <laughs> sometimes you also you're so lofty like I, I after I climbed El Capitan one year I spoke to a group Again, of kids casual <laughs> yeah and I'm like talking about climbing blind and how I do this and how I do that and then this one kid raised his hand and I'm like ready for the big question he goes how do you brush your teeth I'm like, yeah, see? Oh, okay. I got to back up a little bit, clearly. <laughs> <laughs> so, Diva, 
On the practical side of the oceans, yes, there's beauty, there's awe, there's exploration, but from a practical side, why should people care? What secrets, what insights can be revealed from the oceans that like maybe helps humans to survive and flourish? So that's a great question, and I'm really glad you asked that, Eric. I think it's, apart from the fact that the ocean is this awe-inspiring, beautiful, global entity, basically, and something that we engage with on so many different levels, apart from that, apart from the fact that it is home to close to a million species that just continue to like completely bewitch us and, again, just leave us speechless often, apart from those two things, I'd say that the ocean is what makes the planet habitable. To be very frank, without it, we would not be here. And I say that because, for instance, it covers the majority of our planet. It is our biggest climate ally against the climate crisis that we're facing by sequestering carbon and absorbing heat. It provides food, primary source of protein to billions of people around the world. It has potentially could provide solutions in our future to challenges we might face in our future, like antibiotic resistance and other medical breakthroughs. Really, there is so much that we already do get and can get in the future from the ocean. And we know that there's you, everyone around the world or most people around the world have had some kind of ocean experience, right? And I should say most. And it's we use it for so many things. We use it for transport. We but then there's also this cultural value of the ocean and that we use it to swim, to soak, to dive to all of these different ways in which we engage with the ocean and have it as a place of not just as part of our livelihoods and our and having economic benefit from it, but also just having benefits to our well-being from it. And and also there's things like spiritual links, et cetera, et cetera. There's so much that we get from the ocean and really it plays a critical role in our lives every day, even if we may be thousands of miles away from it. So ensuring that it's here and able to function in the way that it currently does in the future, our lives literally depend on it. So then in saying that, sharks riddled with heavy metals and trash and people raking the ocean with nets and just wiping out animals and bags of plastic at the bottom of the Mariana Trench. Like, how do you not get bitter? How do you not say this freaking world, humans are so callous and so short-sighted, or maybe you do get bitter sometimes. I absolutely do get bitter sometimes. (laughs) We're all human, right? (laughs) Yeah. And it's really hard when, thank God I'm not a coral reef biologist, because I cannot imagine what it would be like to just watch what you study and dedicate your lives to just dying in front of your eyes. But as a deep sea biologist, you said it, we go down into the deep sea and it's a place that no one has been to before, but we find our trash. So even though the deep sea may seem remote and out of reach, it certainly isn't. But yes, there is bitterness, but I think ultimately there's also hope. We wouldn't be doing what we do, Eric, without having that hope of a better future and dedicating our lives towards working to change it. And while there are a lot of bad actions that that we're currently doing and have done in the past, I think there's, in order to make things better, we should look to the positive examples. And a great one is the fact that up until the 1980s, we were just decimating whale populations globally from whaling. And in the 1980s, in I think 1987, which is the year I was born, actually, 
they announced a moratorium on whaling. And since then, whale populations are rebounding globally. And sure, they're not what they used to be at yet, but they are getting there. And it certainly was a huge positive step that the world united to take. And that's the kind of action that we need now is this unified action to do things like stop biodiversity loss, stop harmful actions in the ocean, stop the climate crisis, etc. And you just always have to have hope because otherwise, what's the point? I love it. So we started with the topic of poop and we'll finish, I guess, because there's a, they're talking about, I heard like whales, if they don't exist on earth, like they poop and that's like food for all species at the bottom of the ocean. And without whales, humans, ultimately the chain of, of life, like we, we will die out most likely. So whales are a great example in that they their poop helps to sequester carbon and basically lock away carbons rather than letting it get into the atmosphere to continue to basically heat up the planet, et cetera, et cetera. Their, food, their poop also feeds lots of animals. They're a critical part of the ecosystem, but there are lots of other... Every animal in the ocean has its function and its role, and it likely contributes to this whole system working in the way that it does so every animal has surprising ways that we might not even imagine exactly there's so much that we don't know yet and don't understand yet and i think the more we explore the more that we study it that's how we're going to be able to find solutions to the challenges we'll face in our future and work to preserve our planet and on that note i wanted to quickly plug that i'm going to be going to see to explore the deep ocean off Costa Rica in for the month of June. And just as an FYI, World Ocean Day is June 8th. So we're going to be at sea for three weeks over June, from June 2nd, I think. And the remarkable thing about the expedition, apart from the fact that we are going to many never-before-explored parts of the deep sea off Costa Rica, and that we're going to a really special place where there are only two have, that have been discovered in the world where mother octopus, mother deep sea octopus that are purple and adorable, mm. all been found living in one place amongst a slightly warmer fluid where they're basically sitting with their eggs brooding them. We have no idea why they're all in this place, but it's just an amazing thing to behold. And so we're going to be going there as well. But the best thing about this expedition is that it's all going to be live streamed on the internet. So you can be sitting in your living room in Colorado at midnight and you log on and basically you are on the seafloor with us off Costco. Purple octopus. Three, exactly, with the purple octopus, three kilometers deep, four kilometers deep. You're herring. You're seeing things at the exact same time that scientists are seeing them for the first time. You're really exploring the deep sea with us. It's a remarkable thing to watch. Please do tune in if you can. The name of the ship is the Falkor 2, F-A-L-K-O-R-T-O-O. And if you go onto the Schmidt Ocean Institute website, you'll be able to find the live stream. It's all free. And it just, I can promise you, Netflix and Disney Plus have got nothing on deep sea TV. <laughs> we'll promote the <laughs> heck out of that in the show notes and everything as well. Great, um, thank love you. that. God, fantastic, Diva. That's so cool that you're still, you're only, you're not even 40 yet. So I don't know why I said still, but. <laughs> That you're just so active. You're out there. You're the real deal. I hate to be negative, but there's so many explorers out there that are all worried about social media and just how they're seen and stuff. And you're the real deal and the world needs more of you. I'm such a huge fan. I have such huge respect for all the things you're doing and what you've built and what you've achieved. So thanks for being a part of the podcast. And I know tons of people are going to get so much out of this as they think about your life and your challenges, the barriers you face, and all you've been able to do. 
And Eric, it has been a, such an absolute pleasure to be here. Meeting you through the Welcome to Our series was one of the absolute highlights of that series for me. I Likewise, I'm in complete awe of what you do and all that you have done and the way in which you do it. And it's just been wonderful to be here. So thank you so much for having me. All right. Thanks. Have fun out there. Bye, Eric. Thanks. All right. No bears, everyone. The production team behind this podcast includes producer Diedrich Chonk, that's me, sound design, editing, and mixing by Tyler Kotman, marketing and graphics support from Stone Ward, and web support by Jamlo. Special thanks to the Dan Ryan Band for our intro song, Guidance. And thanks to all of you for listening. We know that you've got a lot of choices about how you can spend your time, and we appreciate you spending it with us. If you enjoy this podcast, we encourage you to subscribe to it, share it, and give us a review. Show notes can be found at NoBarriersPodcast.com. That's NoBarriersPodcast.com. There's also a link to shoot me an email with any suggestions for this show or any ideas you've got at all. Thanks so much and have a great day. See you.